This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The Liberal government, the federal government, says there is no plan right now to change any laws to protect Canadian pensioners when companies like Sears file for bankruptcies, which is, of course, exactly what happened. And now a number of those soon-to-be ex-employees and some who already got the chopping block uh, are complaining about the fact that, well, you know, they counted on this stuff for years and years and there doesn't seem to be any protection for them. So what is the government to do? Well, the opposition parties, of course, are saying that there should be legislation. Probably easier said than done. Joining us to talk about this is Ian Lee of the Sports School of Business, of course, up at Carleton University. How are you doing this morning, Ian? Good morning. I'm doing just fine. Good. This is a sense of deja vu to this discussion for us here in the Hamilton area, because we went all through this, and you and I talked about it, I think, Ian, during the times of the U.S. Steel CCAA situation, where a number of the pensioners thought that they deserved to be a lot higher on the pecking order when it came to who was going to get what. Uh, They were sadly disappointed to find out no, and here we go again. Yeah. Um, I'm going to probably uh, really anger some of your listeners, uh, but I'm just going to ask them to hear me out. Sure. Um, I do not support um, any special protection for Sears. Let me explain why. It has nothing to do with Sears. Um, An employer pension is not required by law. Only about 36% of employees have an employer pension in Canada. Two-thirds of workers in Canada, including almost almost everyone in small business and medium-sized business, have no employer pension. Let's get that out there on the table. I fully disclose for anybody who wants to say, well, it's fat, easy for you fat cats in the public sector. You've all got really good pensions. Yes, we do, and there's some unfairness there we can talk about separately. And I mean by that professors and hospital workers and school teachers and public servants in the federal, provincial, and municipal governments across Canada. They have extremely generous pensions. No question about it. We can talk about that. There's things that should be done there to make it more balanced. But we're dealing here with the private sector. In the private sector, two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of workers have no pension at all. So then the first question is, if we're bailing out Sears, workers or any worker of a of a company where there was a pension plan why are we why are two-thirds that have no pension whatsoever subsidizing with their taxes that that small minority group that's the first issue the second issue is according to osfi which is the federal regulator of federal pensions i don't want to get into the weeds here but about ninety percent of all pensions in canada are regulated provincially because they're under provincial regulation only about ten percent are federally regulated such as the banks such as Sears because it was a national company eighty five percent of federally regulated pensions right now are underwater that's the slang phrase for meaning they have unfunded liabilities I didn't say they're bankrupt I said they're underwater they don't have enough assets on hand to pay everybody so if we this is the same problem in the states by the way they looked at it and the cost of bailing out every unfunded or underfunded pension plan i mean is just staggering we're talking in the billions and billions in the states it's probably in the trillions and so the cost of the moment you bail out one pension plan you are you've set a precedent to to backstop and guarantee all the pension plans. And there just isn't enough money uh, to do that. The third, and let me, uh, uh, so this sounds okay, like, uh, excuses, but I want to, I just want to put those facts on the table. Sure, no, it's understandable. Okay, and now let me deal with the, this does not mean that the federal government is, a, quote, abandoning these people. The government does support Canadians. It's called the old age pension, which is a universal pension paid to every last living, breathing Canadian when they turn 65. And people below the poverty line, which is measured by the Tax Act, I mean, through your tax, your tax returns, mm-hmm. uh, you are qualified for the guaranteed income supplement, which brings your income up significantly above the OAS, and you get Canada pension. So my point is, it's not as if the government... Has, is saying we have no responsibility here, you know, just that's just too bad. Uh, they have, uh, through the last 40, 50 years, since the 1960s, these programs were introduced by Lester Pearson in 1965. And I'm talking old age pension, guaranteed income supplement, and the Canada pension. And they've been tweaked and topped up and enhanced over the last 50, 60 years in the process, whereas once upon a time, in my late mother's time, 
uh, poverty was overwhelmingly an elder thing. It was older people who were in poverty, overwhelmingly. And in the past uh, 60 years, we have gone from to one of the lowest rates of elder poverty on the planet Earth because of old age pension and Canada pension and guaranteed income supplement. So what I'm trying to say, and so now finally in terms of the solutions, uh, very quickly, because I, there isn't this, I can't tell you there's a solution for the Sears people on this, on their, 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 their un- insolvent pension. I mean, I can talk about larger solutions, and, and I want to get this out there, and I'm going to really annoy some people, I'm absolutely certain. The idea, when we are now living, men are living to 81, that's stats can life expectancy. Women are living to 84, and in the next 20, 30 years, it's forecast men are going to be living to 90. It is preposterous, absolute madness to allow people to retire at 55. We've got to ban uh, uh, retirement before uh, the OECD is saying we've got to push. All the countries are arguing there's, uh, there's, they're facing bankruptcy in the next 20 years. They're talking about going to retirement age of 70. And here we are letting people go at the door at 55, and they're living to 80 and 85. Well, no wonder these pension plans, these, these um, defined benefit pension plans, are facing so much difficulty. And what they're doing, by the way, just one final quick point on this, uh, the, the number of so-called defined benefit pension plans, which is what Sears is, where they guarantee you, you know, you work so many years, and they quote, promise you, it's not guarantee, it's a promise. They promise you a certain pension for a certain amount. Uh, but we're living longer and longer, and the returns are lower and lower, so they've got bigger and bigger unfunded liabilities, and they can't afford to, to, to pay out these things. So what, what's happening is a lot of these employers are, are getting out. They're not required to offer a pension to anybody. So what more and more employers are doing is uh, getting out of defined benefits, pension plans, and they're either winding down their pension plan completely or they're converting it to a defined contribution pension plan. These aren't buzzwords. Essentially, a defined contribution says you get out of it whatever you pay into it. That's it. There's no guarantee beyond that. Whereas with defined benefit, that's been sort of the gold standard of pensions. So where am I going with all this? We need major pension reform in this country because we've got really three sets of rules. We've got the OAS rules, which says you get it at 65. We've got the Canada pension rules, CPP, that says you can go between 60 and 70. And then you've got these private employer pension plans that allow people to go out the door at 55. And where is the real insolvency problem? In the private employer pension plans. And so either they're going to disappear, as I think most of them will, or they're going to have to be reformed to not allow people going out the door at 55 or 58 or 59, that sort of thing. There are a number of things at play here, and I'm going to throw one of them out that I know you've heard before, Ian, and we heard it during the debate with U.S. Steel, and now we're hearing it with Sears, is that these are, the, the phrase that I hear is deferred wages, and that's really money that, that is owed to us. That's, that's their argument on yes. this. Yes. And, and I, I, I get them to a point. In other words, they're saying, well, we took less in the way of wage increases yeah. and backed it up with pension. Yeah. But at, at any time, I guess my question to them, and, and I'll ask you the same question, did the government ever say, yeah, and we'll back that up? Did they ever say that, that no. we'll stand behind that? No. In fact, in the, literally going back to Roosevelt uh, in the U.S. and Mackenzie King and the Depression, which is when all of the, the progressive legislation first started, I mean, first started, you know, minimum wage laws and worker protection laws and union laws and so forth. And all the way down from then until now, governments have avoided like the plague, like the bubonic plague, have avoided committing to backstopping insolvent pensions. They, because they understand the magnitude. We're talking, people don't realize, we're talking, look at Ontario. I'm, I'm, an, I'm a professor. My pension is underwater right now. All 19, sorry, 23 university, uh, pension, university pension plans are underwater. Now, mine's pension plan is in the best shape. It's only just slightly underwater. The universities went to Dun- Dwight Duncan, finance minister, and said, help, help, help us. We're underwater. And he said, go off and solve your problem yourself. Increase your pension payments, your, your premium contributions off your paycheck. And I, at my university, along with all my colleagues, got whacked with a great big fat increase. We had to pay more every paycheck into our pension plan to contribute 
to the insolvency, the under, not insolvency, the underfunding, because it's underfunded. It's not 100% funded. And that's what his solution was to the uh, universities of Ontario. He said, you want to solve your underfunding problem, solve it yourself by voting to yourself to, to agree to an increase in the premiums. In other words, he was saying, we, the government, are not going to backstop you and subsidize your underfunding. In other words, let me be even more crass and probably really upset some of your listeners. What they're really saying in code is, you're giving yourself too generous a pension plan. If you want a more generous pension plan, pay bigger premiums. But Ian, and why th- didn't anybody see, uh, and those that designed this, and we can go all the way back to Canada Pension Plan, as you mentioned, in 1965, and yes. I think we all have heard the analogy of the pyramid, and how back in those days it yep. was very narrow at the top and wide at the bottom, and all those people yep. at the bottom paid up. It's inverted now. We get that. Yep. But but did they not see that this was coming at some point in the future? Um we knew in a very sort of, and I've looked back, and I've gone and looked at, at, the, um, at the debates in, in Hansard, in the House of Commons, and I think there was such a sense uh, that there was this horrible thing called elder poverty, and it was apparently massive. Most elders were poor, and, and in, in a very bad way, could not afford drugs, could not afford to go to the doctor. Remember, we brought up universal health care at the very same time, 1965. So it wasn't just old age pension, it, universal old age pension. It wasn't just CPP. We brought on health care, which transformed the, the lives of these elder people from literally, they were reduced, many of them, to eating cat food or dog food or whatever. And their, their lives were just, it was horrible. And, and so there was this sense that we had to do something. And I don't think that they were sitting around saying, gee whiz, 40, 50 years from now, we're going to have a, an aging crisis, and we've got to start thinking about that today. That it didn't cross their horizon. It wasn't on their radar screen. And, and now, because there's so many of me, I'm a boomer, by the way, uh, next year I turn 65. And, uh, and there's lots of me. I mean, there's millions of me. And, and we are are moving into our senior years and and so this is why this is such an urgent situation that we're not going to overburden our young people behind us because there's fewer of them than there are of us and so we've got to do pension reform unfortunately and i thought it was a terrible mistake of of prime minister trudeau to roll back the oas from 67 to 65 i thought it was just truly irresponsible because the OECD has shown the data on this for every country showing that we face a looming crisis that because of me the boomers we the boomers there's so many of us and they're arguing pushing up the retirement pension age into 70 and Europe is in far worse shape because they allow them in places like Greece and France to go at 61, 62. And it's bankrupting these countries. We've got to have a serious adult conversation and recognize you cannot go on pension at 55 without blowing up your pension system. But but, but they were told something totally different. And maybe it was by union leadership back in those days. It yep. certainly wasn't the government of the day. Right. At any time was the government saying, we'll guarantee those pensions. But yeah, union leaders said, don't worry, guys, you're going to be fine. You'll have your CPP yep. plus this pension. Yep. You can have a nice retirement. Remember remember the, uh, the ad campaign a few years ago, Freedom 55? Yep. Oh, I thought it was a fraud then. And How did that work out? More of now is it, was a, it was a horrible fraud on the people of Freedom 55. We're living, listen, we're living to 80 and 85. My late mother just passed away living on her own at 91. The number of people in their 80s and 90s is skyrocketing. And so my point is, I'm not saying we are not going to put allow people to retire, but the idea that we're letting people going out the door and we're giving them a pension of 30 or 40 or 50 or 60,000, and they're going to be collecting it for the next 30 years. Everyone out there in Radio Land should ask yourself a question. Do you really believe you and your company, with your employer premiums and the employee premiums, paid in over the 20, 30 years you were working, paid in enough money to finance a pension of 30 or 35 or 50,000 a year for the next 35 years? Nobody can say Nobody can answer. The only nobody pension plan that I know of, of money. So, of course, there's unfunded liabilities in these employer pension plans. The first solution they should do is say, we're going to stop anyone going out the door before 65 we're going to adopt the oas retirement age no one shall go out the door and by the way i did speak to an actuary uh, accountant and i said would 
in all of these unfunded pension plans, and it's not just universities, by the way. The government of Canada has a third of a trillion dollars of unfunded pension liabilities uh, for the public servants. And I said, if you said nobody may retire before 65, would not that get rid of a lot of the unfunded liability? And this actuary said, well, of course. The unfunded liability is a forecast. We know statistically with great accuracy when people are going to die. We don't know when an individual is going to die, but we know collectively when we're going to die, men and women. Okay, we, the, so the variable is how long are you on retirement getting that pension? Well, if you go at the door at 55 instead of 65, you've got to pay that person another 10 years of money. So you can get rid of that money by saying you may not go at the door before 65 on pension. You can quit your job if you want. Good for you. You can go get another job. But the idea that we're allowing people to retire at 55 or 58, we are creating these problems unnecessarily. Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business. Uh, always enlightening, Ian. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Thanks T- a lot. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I'm uh, developing quite a thick file now, accumulation of uh, emails uh, and uh, requests and concerns, I guess, expressed by a number of our listeners over the last little while about uh, traffic movement here in the city. And uh, it seems that every time there's a new wrinkle, a new innovation, that uh, there's this wave of uh, anger and protests and questions. Of, hey, why'd they do that? Who said they could do that? Oh, you know what? This is going to have an impact. On... And you've seen this, and we've talked about it on the program, whether it was the uh, the new configurations on Charlton and Herkimer that uh, some people are still concerned about and complaining about, uh, the possibility of uh, putting uh, Aberdeen on a road diet and narrowing that down, bike lanes on Bay Street, the more recent one, I guess, and on and on it goes. And I, I thought what we needed to do here is maybe take a step back and Talk a little bit about the plan, and there is a plan apparently that the city and city council, uh, we're told, had already agreed upon. Yet every time part of that seems to get implemented, somebody seems to get upset about it. Jason Farr is the councilor for Ward Two downtown, where uh, a lot of this stuff is going to be happening. So I wanted to have him come on and explain a little bit, so we can get the, the lay of the land. Councilor Farish, sir, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Good to be back on the program. Well, let's talk a little bit about that, and, and maybe the newest one, Jay, which is, uh, I guess, the official opening is going to be tomorrow with the bike lanes on Bay Street. Uh, I have had untold phone calls and complaints from people in the last little while saying, who gave these guys permission? We didn't know this was happening. There, There is a master plan at play here, is there not? Yeah, 2006 cycling master plan, Bay Street identified, uh, and uh, as you noted up top, uh, voted on accordingly uh, back in the day, and and more recently with the... Um, so it did pass city council? Oh, sure. And and with, uh, in fact, long before my time, um, I would have joined council in 2010. That master plan was uh, uh, vetted and debated uh, back in the mid-2000s. So this is part of that master plan. And, and as you say, the official grand opening, 11 a.m. tomorrow, city hall at the main day. Yeah, for the, for the bike lane aspect. But, I mean, there have been other things that have gone on, too. Oh, for the latest uh, I, implementation, yes. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that most, if not all, of the councillors probably read the master plan. Uh, I like to think that they did anyway before they voted on it, although, you know, I'm <laughs> you never know. But but here's the deal. Why, then, is there so much pushback every time part of this plan gets implemented? And and a lot of it's directed at you, by the way, because you're the downtown guy for this area. Sure, and I've grown accustomed to it, and I, I completely understand and appreciate uh, when we hear from, and primarily, uh, and although not exclusively, uh, from folks who are commuting in and from outside the ward. But there are people inside the ward as well that have questions and concerns once they see the infrastructure taking hold, once we see the construction take place. And in this case with uh, the Bay Street project, I've been on the south side, and I've just more recently met with a constituent on the north side between Barton and uh, Stewart to talk about parking issues uh, related to uh, this particular project. But but it's understandable. Whenever there's a lane gone or a change made on our city streets and sidewalks, uh, uh, folks, uh, as it happens, uh, tend to um, you know, focus on the reality and uh, and share with their councillors and sometimes with all of council and the mayor their concerns. Well, and and there's two elements to this. We'll talk about the bike lanes first of all because that seems to be a rather contentious issue still with some people, uh, notwithstanding uh, council's support for the the concept of this and and I would hope the implementation of it. And it got off to a rocky start. 
uh, because of the way that it was done. And, and the, the, I think a lack of understanding maybe by the public in this. And I can remember having some discussions with uh, Brian McCaddy when he was the Ward 1 councillor a few years ago uh, about what went on in Dundurn Street. And a number of the residents and businesses there were upset about that. Uh, is the city doing a better job of getting the message out there before they start painting the lines on the road or whatever it is that they're going to do? Yeah, we can't take for granted, like just Bay Street alone, the latest uh, installment, a couple of kilometers of our cycling master plan and an important uh, north uh, and south installment uh, was uh, debated at council because there was the 50-50 uh, partnership with the province on this implementation. And so we can't take for granted that that public meeting and coverage of uh, that particular agenda item by folks like yourself on 900CHML, Bill, is enough. So we held a uh, public information center at City Hall, well attended, uh, well over 100 uh, residents back in November uh, 2016. Uh, we as well invited uh, uh, um, some councillors, uh, obviously Ward 8's uh, Terry Whitehead was uh, was apprised of the November 16th public information center. It was right around the time where you and I and he and others were talking about uh, the uh, transformation, if you will, uh, many think in a positive way of Herkimer or Charlton. And so uh, we felt it important to make sure the good counselor was in the loop, um, understanding and appreciating his arguments at the time that his Ward 8 commuters, uh, commuters to downtown Hamilton, uh, weekdays primarily, uh, were going to be affected. And so we, we held, a, a, I would say, a very successful PIC. And at that uh, particular uh, consultation with the consultants, with our city staff, we heard a lot of great ideas. Uh, from the public, and uh, ultimately, many of uh, uh, of those inputs were part of uh, what we are going to be cutting the ribbon on this uh, coming Friday. So it, it was it was good. I mean, and obviously, coverage from the local media when we make these changes uh, towards you know a higher order uh, look at the way we uh, get around town um, uh, it has been very robust of late in the last few years, and that helps. There's another phrase I want to throw into the, d- the discussion here, if I could. Traffic calming. Is that part of the master plan? Is that part of the, 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 the overall concept that was debated by City Council? Well, let's put it this way. If we're, again, just focusing on Bay, when you put uh, take one lane away from uh, uh, a road such as Bay, that at certain times in the day, particularly on commuter times, morning and afternoon drives or rushes, uh, we've had in the past, in Ward 2 anyway, concerns about the speed of traffic um, and the volume of traffic. Well, it's not just your ward. I mean, we've had this discussion with Council Marula, and I know he got a lot of pushback when he put uh, a slower, a 40-kilometer limit on Kenilworth Avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, people always complain and say it's a tax grab. Well, no, you just obey the law. And that's starting to happen. I mean, I think there's a move afoot now to make 40 the new normal uh, on residential streets, and, and it's happening in more and more communities. This is not just a Hamilton issue. Yeah, we have it under our purview to deal with that now with the new provincial legislation. And my guess is, from talking to many of my colleagues, uh, we probably will be 40K where we're 50K on residential streets across the board and save what's been, oh, I think, over a million dollars on 40K signs in recent years. So we just need to put those signs at the entrances to our city. This is a 40K residential street city. But to your point on the calming, absolutely. When you take a lane away from what's two or three lanes of traffic concerns at certain times, you do obviously get a calming aspect but i think in this case as well bill we are going to see i'm 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 certain of it a very widely used cycling corridor we're going from the south the very south the densest neighborhood in hamilton the duran neighborhood through our core through the center of commerce the center of governance uh, the mall uh, uh transit hubs higher order transit hubs of course with the go station this takes you directly to that go station directly to what eventually will be a bay street lrt stop i'm sure and, and then all the way down to our rejuvenating harbor so this this is uh, a key cycling corridor and with the money's 50 50 uh partnership with the province we were able to um attract more cyclists because much of it and especially in the busier sections is protected which makes it much safer and makes it much more appealing to uh any kind of cyclists kids seniors and everything in between but whether you're talking about speed limits or reducing speed limits or bike lanes and and the implementation or what they call road diets in other words uh narrowing or maybe even eliminating some of the traffic lanes let, let's let's cut to the quick here the the purpose sure. of doing that it's to slow traffic down is that not right it's it's, it's a safety issue it's to slow traffic down 
because yeah. people are driving too fast through neighborhoods, including some arteries, but residential streets for the most part. And I wouldn't say it's the purpose, but it's definitely uh, complementary to a number of, of beneficial factors that come when you install a All right, bike so with that, that in mind... bombing is an important aspect of Yeah, of course it is. So with that in mind, because the overwhelming majority of calls and complaints that I get every time the city implements one of these plans is, well, I can't get from A to B as fast as I used to be able to. And I'm trying to explain to people as best I could. And I said, first of all, it's not my policy, but I said, I, I think I see the merit in what they're doing. Of course you're not going to get as fast uh, from A to B as you used to be able to do. That's what traffic calming is supposed to do. It's supposed to slow traffic down, make things more safe for cyclists, for motorists, for pedestrians, for everybody else. Absolutely. So, but, but I don't hear anybody on council articulating that. Maybe because it's a contentious item. Maybe because people are saying, look, i got to be to work at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you know, I used to be able to buzz down Charlton, or I used to be able to go down uh, Herkimer, and now it takes me twice as long. And and I said, well, yeah, it's going to, and you know what? It's going to happen on more and more streets. So, but but that's 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 the result of traffic calming methods. That's the uh, of putting buffers and berms and things of that nature in there. Yet everybody seems to think, sure, I'm in favor of bike lanes as long as it doesn't impede my way to get from where I want to get as quickly as I want. I, I think we've got a, a mindset problem here, which is causing an awful lot of the grief. Uh, sure, and and some may want to focus on the, the the inconvenience for motorists where they become accustomed to over generations a certain route that was unimpeded. Uh, now with the calming, let's call it calming, Bill. There's obviously sustainability, environmental aspects, uh, aspects, healthier community aspects when you put in a bike lane in this case. But calming is also an aspect. Uh, you're going to inconvenience uh, those folks who are are used to a certain. Uh, um, schedule that they've kept as commuters and automobiles to get to and from our core in this case, but in other cases as well, where we put calming measures in. And and you're talking, you know, about speed humps that are calming measures. You're talking of, about uh, pinch points or or curb curb cuts that uh, pinch uh, residential streets primarily, but they happen on minor arterial roads as well. Where you see those knockdown sticks, all in an effort to slow folks down where traditionally we've seen, you know, cut through traffic or, or higher speeds than a residential street or a minor arterial street should should have. And and that's not just a, a downtown thing. You're right. It's across the city. And calming is an inconvenience for motorists who have traditionally been used to a certain speed and a certain uh, a window of time to get from point A to point B on a regular route. And if they have to change that route or that route takes longer, people like Councillor Whitehead, frankly, who noted it last night in Ward 8, uh, take note and um, uh, 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 bring bring that particular aspect. What he's hearing from his residents, and I believe he is, he's shared with me many stories and emails and phone calls and so forth in the last few days, and did when it was Herkimer Charlton. Uh, and and that change in people's habits and roots and timing, uh, that that's something that he's going to talk about and focus on. But you're right; there's way more to it, and and it's and it's not exclusive to downtown Hamilton for certain. When we talk about calming, it's a desired aspect, especially in in residential neighborhoods. And we've seen more and more of this. And and I'm not trying to be flippant here, but I mean the short answer that I would like to think councillors are going to give those constituents is, well, did you ever think of leaving a little earlier now? Uh, you know, if it used to take you 15 minutes to get to work and now it's taking you 20, how about you leave five minutes earlier from your house? Uh, but but nobody seems to want to do that. In other words, it, it, nobody seems to want to ex- accept the fact that, listen, this is going to have an impact on you, and it may take you a little longer, but it's making for a safer community. And what's I, I don't understand the downside here. Well, you know, I, sometimes I like to relate it to... Um, you know, when I, and by when the I way, get, I should let me reference this. Sure. I'm, I get held up in in, in sh- slower traffic too. I mean, I drive those routes. I go downtown most days in through these, and I'm impacted by this. And yeah, one time when I was driving down Herkimer, yeah, I did get behind a garbage truck. Big deal. I mean, it took me maybe an extra minute to get to where I wanted to go. I, you know what? It didn't ruin my day. I, I, I don't understand how people get so uptight because they say, "Well, I'm on a tight schedule." And it, it's it's almost like they've they've developed this this it's all about me attitude as opposed to looking at the greater good for the city. And I'd like to think on the greater good that those folks who right now have issue with Bay as it still is under construction and for the most part, but will be 
in operation come this weekend. And even though it's cooler temperatures and uh, we're heading into winter, those folks who regularly take that route, who may be stuck now at that commuter time that they take that route, which is, you know, that that pinch from 7.45 to 9 in the morning and from 3.45 to 5.15 in the afternoon, they're, they're, they're going to see activity on that bike lane. They're going to see, you know, a wonderfully restored piece of uh, road network as well. And when they see the activity, I hope that most people will go, oh, okay, I, I get it now, and I appreciate this. Look at how much more aesthetically pleasing and calmer things feel in this particular area. And maybe they're going to stop and take notice. Hey, you know, I've been cutting through a neighborhood with lots of people and seniors and children and families and schools and city hall and malls and for years and years and maybe haven't really taken notice of my of my surroundings on this community route but now i think people will for the most part and hopefully they'll appreciate it and utilize i know sometimes it's tough to say you and ward eight get on your bike now we've made this wonderful cycling network for you to have commuter options now because of that darn escarpment it's tough to climb for you me and a whole bunch of people on the other hand we have tracks in our stairs and there are options, and, and, you know, I know everybody's busy, but now and again, I do it. Uh, others I know do it. Uh, take a little extra time. Get on the HSR. Take your bike and, and realize that, uh, you know, sometimes it's it's a much more calming way to start your day when you have, you know, you know a, you're not in such a rush. Let's put it that way. And when you're on a bike or on a bus or taking a multimodal option as opposed to your usual, let's just get through that Tim Hortons drive through and fly into the office in the sort of six to eight minute span, uh, it, it's a, it's, it can be, it can be a, a less stressful start. Let's put it that way. And I don't, I'm not trying to get too much onto the side of, uh, of, uh, something you must do, but something hopefully people will contemplate once they see protected cycling infrastructure in this case, but other calming measures that we put into place. It's all part of a, a greater good and a greater design. And, uh, the create and from an economic development st- standpoint and a sustainable city standpoint, Bill, you know this, but hopefully people start to recognize that it's actually a huge, huge investment for a, lo- a lot of great reasons, and not just traffic calming. Well, but I, st- I still b- believe the traffic calming element of this, and I believe that, uh, and, yeah, and police have told me this, and I know they've talked to you guys because they've gone before city council. Uh, that when cars or vehicles go slower, uh, the incidence of accidents goes down, the severity of the accidents, the Absolutely. possibility of fatalities goes down significantly, and it's better for the environment. And I, I think we just we developed this mindset for many, many years now that we got to get somewhere fast. It's got to be as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, and and we got to get over that. I mean, I, th- I think we're supposed to be smarter these days, and most other cities are doing this now. And and all people can see is the inconvenience to what they thought the way things should be, and 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 I think there has to be a discussion, and I think the elected officials around the city council table have to be the leaders in that discussion to say, look, at there's a new dynamic at play here, and and you got to get used to this. That it's going to take you longer to get from point A to point B, and it's only going to continue to be that way in the next little while as the LRT gets built and as other roads are constructed. And I agree with a lot of this other stuff. I think it's a great idea that the Queen become a two way street. Get it done. The sooner the better. That's a fabulous idea. But but it's, it's got to be done in concert with some of the other programs that are going on right now so that everybody, whether they're walking or cycling or driving or whatever it is that they're doing, uh, can do it safely. And and we're not there yet. Well, there's a there's a staffer, Bill, the director of uh, this particular area, Transportation Demand Management, who said to me for seven years now, he's been at the home for about 15 years. And in that time, he often says to me, he, he has never yet got a call from a resident of Hamilton asking for a wider street. Uh, generally, what we get is requests for calming. And even from those folks, I, I know I've talked to a few from outside of downtown that are really upset that all of a sudden their commute is two to three minutes longer because we've put in a bike lane on Herkimer or Charlton or Bay Street or, or created some form of calming to speak to calming. Uh, I'll say, well, wait a minute, you're up there, where? Chedmack. You've got two, I take my son up to hockey there, and it used to be quite easy to just fly right through your residential street, but you've put two speed humps in there. So you yourself in your own neighborhood see yourself or your residents actually demanding the same sorts of calming. It's happening all over the city. You mentioned Brian McHattie. Years ago, Councilor McHattie and I seemed to be the only two councillors that represented our constituents uh, with the requests we were getting for these speed humps, not bumps, speed humps. These, you've seen the, yep. the, the yep. temporary ones all over the city now. 
it, it was quite simple uh, a process. It was maybe two months from the request, usually through petition on that block, to the implementation of the installation of these speed humps. Now it's it's extremely onerous, or at least much much longer a process because the queue is is excessive. As these requests are now coming, not just from Ward One and Two, but across the city, people want calming, particularly on the residential streets. And the big piece of the calming to go full circle on our conversation. In a matter of months, we're going to have our transportation master plan review come before us. There's going to be a lot of calming aspects that are part of that master plan. But at the same time, I would guess are in and around that time on the floor. And to get the word out, as you say, Bill, council doing a better job on what we're hearing out there from the majority of our residents about wanting this calming is we'll be debating an across-the-board City of Hamilton residential street 40K limit, where where it is 50K now. Uh, and, and that's and that's the long and short of it. Part. Yeah, we got to jump, but that because that's where we're going. And and it, by the way, is. just to finish, I I'm not a cyclist. I, I can't remember the last time I got on a bike. Uh, I'm a motorist, uh, and I understand that, that there's got to be a different mindset here. And I hope other people can gravitate to that as well. Uh, Councillor, thanks so much for the time. Appreciate it today. Thank you, Bill. Councillor Jason Farr, of course, uh, for the uh, downtown Ward Two area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Looking forward to this conversation right now, too. We're about uh, a little more than a year from the next uh, election. Provincial election is going to be, uh, of course, in the spring of 2018. But in the fall of that year will be the next municipal election. And as uh, we draw towards the end of a term, like you do in school, you have to have a report card. And it's been a uh, raucous, interesting, event-filled uh, term of council so far. Uh, a lot of the time it gets a little silly when you get closer to election time because there's a lot more electioneering that goes on than necessarily there is policy or, or substantive work that goes into it. But we'll get into that, I'm sure, with our next guest in just a couple of seconds. So how do you rate the work of this council? I mean, they all ran on a certain agenda, each and every one of them. Some of them had commonalities in them, some of them not so much. But as you look at this body of work, about in another three or four months, they're all going to come back and start knocking on our doors and sending robocalls and telling us how wonderful they are and enlist these accomplishments. Well... What are those accomplishments? And, and maybe more importantly, what are some of the things that they said they were going to do that they haven't done yet? I want to bring Brad Clark into the conversation. Brad, of course, is a former city councillor. Actually, he's a former member of uh, the uh, provincial government, former cabinet minister, of course, uh, in the conservative government. Uh, and, of course, a former mayoral candidate in the last municipal election. And uh, always uh, an insightful voice when we bring him to the program. How are you doing this morning, Brad? Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Insightful. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to put any pressure on you here. Oh, no. Lord. <laughs> no, always great to have you on and get your perspective on a number of issues like that. Maybe maybe just to kick off the conversation, your, your overview as you've watched this uh, this council work, and uh, this is the first time, in a, I guess, in a, in a number of years that, that this group has been together. There were some new faces on there. Uh, that uh, were rookies, and, and some, I think, have accomplished a number of things. Others, I think, have been somewhat disappointing. But I guess that's really in the eye of the voter. But as, as somebody with substantial p- political background, talk to us about how you feel this council, first of all, as a whole, has acted. Uh, if I were to grade them, I yeah. would give them a C. Okay. Uh, I, I think they, they left an awful lot on the plate that they could have dealt with this year. Um, uh, I, I agree with your comment that um, the meetings have, on occasion, become very uh, boisterous um, and decorum slips. Uh, but for the for the most part, uh, you know, they, they they clearly have have passed the hurdle. But I, I, I wouldn't say that they haven't had a, an excellent year. Well, and you saw that when you were on council. I mean, you know, there were situations, and some of which you were involved yourself with some of the other councillors, mm-hmm. and they always promised, Brad, oh, we're going to do better. You know, and, and you've heard the mayor and you've heard some of the councillors saying, this, is, this has been the best term of council. We've, we're getting along really well these days, uh, and we're not doing any of that backbiting or that shouting at each other. Uh, I, I I would take I, I would take umbrage. To, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, those are the ones I guess I didn't see because uh, it gets a little testy sometimes. And 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 what I guess bothers me even more, it gets a little personal sometimes. It does, and 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 I really, although the individuals who are doing it, um, you know, they may not even be aware that they're crossing the line in terms of decorum because it's their passion that gets ramped up. But we have to control that as politicians. 
Um, I would put the blame more on the chairs. Um, whoever's chairing the meeting should be uh, reining uh, counselors in who are crossing that line. And if they're not sure how to do it, then I'd suggest that they get some training on how to do it. Well, do they get training? I'm going to bring up a point here that I've raised before, and I know you're aware of it. I just want to put it on the table for the sake of our conversation here with our listeners, too. There was a time on city council many years ago where uh, board chairs and, and, and subcommittee chairs were elected for the whole term of that council. In other words, now it would be a four-year term. If you were elected uh, the head of public works, that was your job for four years or and whatever other department you want to name. Uh, in their wisdom or lack thereof, just after amalgamation, they pretty much decided, you know what, everybody should have a shot at that. That's kind of neat sitting up there in the front and being in charge of the meeting. And, and I, at the time, had some reservations about that because I said there's a skill set that's required here, and I don't think everybody has it. Maybe you can be trained in it. I get that. But some people just aren't very good at that. And I think you've seen that happen too often, Brad, where the people that are supposedly in charge of the meeting, and that's whoever's sitting in the chair at that time, lets the meeting get away from them. Yes, they do. Um, and to answer your earlier question, they do not get training unless they 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 do it on their own as a, as a sitting counselor. I've never heard of anybody that's even tried to do that. But you know, that's not something they necessarily make public. But I haven't I haven't seen the fruits of those labors if they have. Yeah, it, I mean the the chairing the chairmanship has been um, I would say uh, poor. Um, there seems to be a lot of competing interests uh, from time to time. And I've spoken to a number of counselors who have been in the chair and, and really feel that they, they don't have that ability, that, that you know they're taking on that role because it's called upon them to do it, uh, but they don't have that skill set and they feel incredibly uncomfortable being put in a position where they have to climb into the middle of a confrontation and try to quell it down a bit. And, and as a result, I mean, let's face it, there are some individuals on council, and probably on every council, that can be intimidating. And, and, and for those people that have that kind of mindset, I mean, if they sense a weakness, they're going to try to take advantage of it. Oh, and we've seen that happen. Uh, I mean, quite clearly, we've seen that happen on a number of occasions with, with this council. Um, the worst I think I saw was during the LRT debate. It got a little bit personal, and it was unnecessary. Let's talk about some of those issues, and let's let's break to the top of the list. Goes light rail transit. Uh, counselors will say that you know they'll kind of smack their hands and pat themselves on the back and say, "Well, we dealt with that issue." Uh, I'm not so sure that they have. Well, they they got the funding in place. Absolutely, um, they did approve the environmental assessment. Uh, I think that they did drop the ball bill in terms of labor relations uh, with ATU 107. Uh, they could have been more forthright with the province in advance of that. Uh, waiting until the last minute, uh, I, I think, was problematic. And, they, and, and it did come up early in discussions, so they knew that it was a problem, but to push it to the side in the hopes that it wasn't going to be something that, that they had to really make a, a decision on, I think was a mistake. I think the operating costs still remain a real huge issue, and, and um, I would hope that they are are in discussions with the province to minimize those costs as much as possible, um, but more importantly, start to understand what those costs are, because the public doesn't know, and, and I don't think the councillors know yet. And that's a, a bit of a problem when you signed on to this agreement uh, without actually knowing what your operating costs are going to be. So there, there are things that they, they um, euphemistically drop the ball on, but by the same token, they did get the billion dollars, and, and they got the EA in, and so we are moving forward, which is a good thing. Yeah, well, the the money kind of fell into their laps, but nonetheless, I mean, they, <laughs> and, and there were a few of them that tried their best to kind of push it away, but I mean, it's, we are where we are. The other issue that was kind of, a, I guess, a hangover from the last term of council, Brad, and, and certainly you you were heavily involved in this, was the stadium debate and the stadium issue. And, and without opening up the, that whole can of worms about the location, et cetera, uh, it's not over yet because there's still a pending lawsuit, and I'm told that the two sides are still very far apart, and there's millions of dollars at play here. And, and uh, so, you know, when you look at this, if, if they're going to check that box and say we've, we've resolved this issue, they haven't really. Well, and it goes back to the very beginning when the original agreement was put in place with Infrastructure Ontario, and there was a number of us around the table that, that raised a lot of concerns. Uh, Councillor Ferguson uh, comes to mind right off the top. 
um, because the province had complete control over the construction and, and pretty much relegated the city to an observer role. Uh, and so now, after they've handed over the stadium, the city has had to pick up the management role, and, and of course, things were not handed over uh, in a complete fashion. There were numerous deficiencies. So um, I don't blame the council for that. I blame the province for that, and they are trying to deal with it. It's unfortunate that it's now gone to litigation because uh, that's just expensive for all parties. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of money still on the table there. And uh, I mean, the stadium itself is, is functional, it's doing fine, etc. But I mean, the, the financial end of this thing, I guess, is, uh, I guess that's the, the, uh, the hangover that uh, we're still going to have to deal with for some time. I want to get your read, by the way, on, on what a lot of them like to hang their head on as, as the big thing that they've accomplished this year. And that's moving ahead on the waterfront, Pier 7 and 8, and the redevelopment down there. That seems to have been accelerated. I know you guys talked about it in your previous term of council, but they really seem to have hit the gas on this one. Are you, are you okay with how, what's going on and how they're doing it? I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Pier 7 and 8 was something that they did very well. Uh, initially, um, their civic engagement wasn't uh, quite up to, to what my expectations were, um, but they did put a lot of work into it uh, on the second half. Uh, and I think for the most part, Hamiltonians are, are looking forward to seeing um, a, a positive outcome from it. The hiccup is Sarkoa uh, and the Waterfront Trust. And, and again, a contentious item for a number of years on council right now. What are your thoughts on that and how council is dealing with that issue? That one was very disappointing for me because when I was on council, I had moved a motion that was supported by council to develop a business agreement between the Hotter, Hamilton Waterfront Trust and the city outlining roles, obligations, responsibilities, uh, accountability. Um, and my understanding is that agreement was never drafted. Uh, after I lost the mayoralty election, it just kind of fell off the radar and no agreement was ever written. That would have been helpful. Uh, it it would have, and, and, and it was a good motion and everyone was on side. I don't know why it fell off the radar, um, but it is something that needs to be resurrected. Um, it's It's not going to the courts after the fact, trying to resolve some issues that were never addressed in an agreement is problematic. Uh, this may be too inside baseball, but I mean, you sat in those council chambers, as did I, but not with a whole lot of the people that are on that council now. Uh, why is it that they, they seem to get their backs up every time the topic of the Waterfront Trust comes up? Uh, the Waterfront Trust um, was a legacy item for a number of the councillors around that table. I mean, what they did many years ago was to create that trust, um, and it, it really was um, a positive outcome from a very contentious dispute with the federal government. Um, and then over the years, there has been a, a lack of accountability. So on one hand, they're seeing their legacy being uh, maligned, if you will, um, and on the other hand, they're having legitimate questions being asked about transparency and accountability. So somehow they have to reconcile the two, and I think if they actually do draft an agreement and say to the Waterfront Trust, this is your obligation now, your responsibilities, and this is how you're going to report to us, it would solve a lot of the issues. As uh, you and I are speaking right now, Brad, of course, there's an Ontario Municipal Board hearing about the... Uh, uh, issue of ward boundaries. Uh, and, and again, I've, I've been on record as saying I don't think it never had to get this far. I think council booted this thing along for the longest time. I don't think they handled it well. Uh, and now we're a very expensive hearing where they've actually had to hire outside council to try to defend council's position on this. First of all, your idea about the ward boundary issue itself uh, as, as a Stony Creek resident, uh, because it does have an impact on Stony Creek residents, uh, Ancaster residents, more differently, or rather differently than it would, for instance, on some of the inner city wards. How has the council as a whole dealt with this issue, in your opinion? Um, when they didn't, uh, when they hired, well, let's back up a bit. Sure. Uh, in my first term on council, I asked for the review, um, pushed for the review, and the councillors felt that it just was too divisive and they weren't ready for it. So they put it off till the second term. Uh, the same thing happened at the end of the second term. It was put off until this term. They hired um, uh, Watson Associates to do the study, and the study came back showing um, that an additional ward would be the, the best way of dealing with it. And, and I really felt, um, from my experience, that it was a balanced, pragmatic proposal. Uh, and so I was disappointed when uh, the councillors chose not 
to support that recommendation. And and now we're in the middle of this hearing. It sounds as if something's finally going to get imposed on that. Uh, and we'll have to, I guess, wait for the final uh, outcome from that before we can actually ascertain just uh, how well council uh, performed on that issue. But there's one other, uh, just uh, probably, I think, a related issue to this, Brad, that, again, has an impact on your constituents when you were sitting on council. Uh, and that's the area rating issue that, uh, that again, uh, they've, they've taken a run out a few times. There have been some modifications to it. Uh, I'm not so sure that it's where people want it to be right now. Uh, something that I thought this council was going to try to deal with. And it doesn't seem to be anybody's priority list right now. It should be, because it's an unfair situation at the present time. Um, I have, in Upper Stony Creek, where I live, uh, it's an urban area, and and they're getting fairly good, um, actually better than good, HSR service now. But they're not paying for it. They're paying for a portion of it, because they're still area rated. Area rating really is meant to design... Uh, and, and provide an ability to exempt areas of the city who are not receiving a specific service. And historically, it's urban-rural. Um, and Stony Creek, Upper Stony Creek, used to be more rural. Now it's urban. So the urban boundary should be where the area rating is set for transit, and everyone within that urban boundary that receives transit services should be paying the same uh, uh, amount of taxes. The rural area that does not get the service, of course, shouldn't be paying for it. Uh, it seems very logical to me, um, and, and it's not divisive, because if you reach out to those areas and, and explain to them that they are getting an urban level of service, uh, they would be accepting of it, especially if you were to phase it in over five or ten years. So the change wouldn't happen overnight, but the, the increases uh, would happen over a period of time. I really think that putting it off another term uh, because it's just too divisive or it will divide the city, I, 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 I just can't buy that argument. Brad Clark, former city councilor, of course. Uh, always great to have you on the program, Brad. Uh, continue good luck, and I know we'll talk again soon as we get closer to the election. My pleasure. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.